everybody, to another edition of the Inside Indy Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideIndySports.com on the Rivals Network. Notre Dame is done with bye weeks after the Irish spent their second bye week recovering from a loss at Clemson. Notre Dame has now turned its attention to Saturday's home game against Wake Forest, in which the Irish will honor their seniors with the last home game. To discuss the latest ongoings with Notre Dame football, we asked our pal Bob Morton, a former Notre Dame offensive lineman and current director of regional development for the university, to spend some more time chopping it up with us. Bob, thanks again for joining the podcast. Tyler, Eric, as always, it's good to be here. Bob, just to start, what, what were your biggest takeaways from the Clemson loss? Oh, man. That was a hard one to watch. You know, it just it felt like there was so much potential early on in the game. I, I really enjoyed um, just kind of the the program that we were trying to run, um, taking it to Clemson physically. You look at the past few years, the success we've had against Clemson has been in a bit of bully ball and really running the ball effectively. I think that we had some diversity in our running game early and we're able to see um, some really positive results early. Um, but the lack of diversity in the play calling, I think, as the game wore on um, and, and the lack of change ups, right? No screens, no play action passes as things went on uh, was really uh, it was it was just hard to watch. It wasn't even didn't make me angry as much as it did disappointed, uh, because I feel like that was a parenting term, wasn't it? I'm not angry. I'm just <laughs> disappointed. But but I, I really I felt like it was a golden opportunity slipped away. You know, Marcus talked about in his press conference this week. Um, about how it's not just one side of the ball or one individual. But I think you look at that second half and you look at the starting field position, and that was just because you had an anemic offense that second half that couldn't muster more than 60 yards. And uh, that's a that's a really hard pill to swallow for an offense that we've seen do some good things throughout the year. Bob, in terms of like our message board, my emails, my text messages. I'm sure there it's been was really a quiet, lot Eric. of, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of big, picture disappointment associated with this game it wasn't just oh we lost to Clemson it's will Notre Dame ever win a national championship will the sun ever shine in South Bend again you know those kind of questions and I'm I'm wondering is that fair to put on this particular game or did you find yourself at least pondering some big picture questions after the loss so I don't think it's fair to look at this game and say it's a reflection of some bigger catastrophic or, or you know, kind of mind-bending questions. I will say that as the game kind of wore on to the fact where I felt like the ending was kind of in hand for the Tigers, um, for me, my mind shifted, not to what we need to do in the bye week or what we need to do for next game or even what this year is going to look like my mind started to shift to say, what are we doing now to build into next year and the years to come? So I do think that there is something natural when you hit that third loss of the year, the losses looking the way they have for us um, and realizing that, you know, kind of what was out ahead of us, potential New Year six is now gone. I think it lends itself to some uh, uh, big picture questions. Uh, I tend to not go into a place of despair, Um like a lot of fans do, but I mean, when you're on the field for the Bush push in 2005, it's about as low level of despair as you can get. So <laughs> I think for me, it's all just, okay, we're going to get ready to run it back next year. There's still obviously things to worry about now. Um, but yeah, I think it's more of a picture of this is the point in the season where our focus shifts beyond 
you know, whatever the December, January bowl game is going to be. And Bob, I think a lot of fans that I've heard from that maybe feel that way as well, that they want to see what they have for next year are interested in seeing either Steve Angeli or Kenny Minchie play more in these last couple of games. What are your thoughts on that? And then I guess to follow up with that, how would you feel as a player if someone like Sam Hartman was benched for, for younger quarterbacks to finish the season? Yeah. You know, I think that finding a way to navigate that is, is why I'm, I'm happy of not being a coach, right? I'm a proponent of seeing what we have, you know, in the cupboard for next year and Steve and, uh, and in Kenny, but I, I also think that um, Sam Hartman has given his heart and soul to this team. Um, he's not just, he's more than just a one-year player for us, right? He truly has become part of the DNA of Notre Dame football. And in no way um, do I think we should dishonor, discredit, or or ruin kind of the end of his season. So I feel like um, having Sam start and play the majority of the next two games is really key and important. But I would like to see um, a drive or two in the second quarter or um, maybe a significant part of even the third quarter. Um, Steve Angeli gets some reps that count, um, not fourth quarter. You know, we're just trying to run out the clock reps. And then I'd like to see some of those fourth quarter run out the clock reps go to Minchie. And so um, I think you've seen in the past Notre Dame has been able to balance two quarterbacks, one that was maybe your key starter and then a Tyler Buckner or a different kind of changeup quarterback that did some different things. I'd simply like to see Angeli slide into that kind of 1B role for the next two weeks so we can see what it looks like to have a drive that he's really calling the shots and trying to push the ball downfield. Okay, I will follow up with that, Bob, with this question. Wake Forest is kind of middle of the pack defense. Stanford is abysmal defensively. I mean, they're in the bottom five in just about every defensive category. And and I would doubt that Wake Forest has really put a scouting report together on Angeli. So my question is, what what are the positives that you hope to see from Angeli, given that context, given that you're not going to get the full pushback from the other team and yet this is a different circumstances than we've seen him yeah I think the the what I would look to get out of it and this is my my take that um whilst you know every quarterback does some things a little bit differently I don't believe Steve Angeli is uh, a particular system or package quarterback uh, obviously we've seen him be able to do some things with the RPO where you know we fake the handoff, maybe he looks like he's going to run and then he slings it out wide. That's not something that Hartman does on a regular basis. So there are things that he does individually better. But what I want to see is Angeli's ability to run our offense, not a specific package that we're using to try and trick the opposing defense. And I just want to see his poise in the pocket. I want to see you know how he operates when he misses a throw, makes a throw. Uh, what kind of rhythm can he get into? What does the ball look like? coming out of you know his hand and going to receivers. Uh, and I think there's a lot you can tell. Uh, I think Sam Hartman is an incredible quarterback, has not looked great at certain points of this year because the inside of the pocket has kind of collapsed on his lap a little bit. And that can make an average quarterback out of a lot of great quarterbacks. What does Steve Angeli look like with that same kind of pocket presence? What I'm trying to get out of it is twofold. One, internally, confirming what we know we have in Steve Angeli, 
But also, I think it's important for the fan base to see what we have in the cupboard because as decisions are made about, you know, going into the portal for another quarterback, I mean, you guys hear even more than I do, but I'm hearing a lot of people really upset about even the idea of shopping in the portal. I think being able to see what we have allows us to share some communication on why we're even looking at the portal for a one-year player, whether it's somebody to come in and start or somebody just bolster the position room. Bob, I guess big picture, what what do you see as what is most wrong with the offense so far? I know you mentioned right in, the, in your previous answer about Hartman and the inside of the pocket maybe collapsing. So I don't know if that's your answer or if there's something broader that has really impacted this offense and maybe held it back from reaching its potential this season. Yeah, so it's a really, uh, it's a big question. It's somewhat of a, like a sensitive question too, because I think in humility, I have to say like I, and I, I think I've said this every time I've been with you guys, I'm not in that locker room. Right. I don't know all the X's well, and O's of that. <laughs> why not? It's a fair question. I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know all the X's and O's of that particular scheme. Um, that being said, here are some of the key issues that I see. Um Regularly in zone blocking and in pass pro, we have linebackers who are getting through the line of scrimmage without being touched. They're somebody's responsibility. So whether it's a lineman, um, you know, who's not coming off a combo block, somebody missing a pre-snap read, there's some lack of communication going on. There's more people unblocked in the interior line than I've seen in quite some time. Um, our receivers have a habit of going quiet for long periods of time in the game and not getting open. Um, our running backs uh, this past week, probably one of the biggest things is they didn't block anybody in pass protection. Um, you know, our quarterback uh, has periods of time where we're sailing the ball pretty regularly and missing relatively easy throws. Um, and so when you look at all of these things, what one is more important than the other I don't know, but from the outside, to me, it feels like we are not scheming our personnel according to what their strengths are. And that's where it comes down to, I do believe one of the biggest issues we have is a coaching issue, whether it's from the top at the coordinator level or the position uh, level, we have individuals who are not performing on any given play. And it's putting us in three and outs. It's putting us in pretty anemic offenses. And we don't have the diversity in play calling to really make up for the fact that we're not blocking or executing plays perfectly every time. Okay. So, Bob, you were in the Notre Dame locker room for five years. And you yeah. played under a pretty prolific offensive mind and Charlie Weiss calling plays. And you also played under Bill Diedrich with some pretty anemic offenses all those Tyrone Willingham years. As a player, when these questions surround and so forth, and somebody goes, whose house do I need to put the for sale sign on? I mean, would you be able to tell them whether it was the head coach? Well, let's stick in the Willingham era since there were more problems then. Tyrone. Bill Diedrich, your offensive line coaches, which there were were um, John McDonnell and uh, uh, Mike, Mike Denbrock. Denbrock. So 
as a player, do those things run through your mind? And could you tell somebody who to be angry at? Uh could I tell somebody who to be angry at? Sure. Um, I think one of the things I've loved about my time at Notre Dame, first as a player and then now, um, uh, the majority of my conversations really start with humility and ownership and accountability. Uh, I think that's something that you're hearing from um, Coach Freeman right now is that we all have to be accountable for what we can do better. And so when you look at you know those first three years, second and third year, um, were the years of five and seven and six and six for, for us. If somebody asked what was going on, I would be able to tell them the 10 plays that were my responsibility, where my missed block is what kept that 10 yard gain to a two yard gain, kept that two yard gain to a one yard loss or got you know Brady sacked. And so I think that um, what you're hearing internally and from our players and from our coaches about self accountability is really, really important. Um, but ultimately, you know, as I kind of look back on those years, I think that when you have a scheme that um, that has every member of your offense or offensive line in particular somewhat confused right before the snap of who does what, it means that the scheme is either too complicated or too simple to account for these free rushers that are coming in. And... Um, I think the hardest conversations that I ever had in the locker room were with me and other offensive line teammates who were kind of being yelled at that we weren't playing hard enough or doing enough or blocking a guy that we should have. When if all of us did everything perfectly with that pretty anemic play calling, we were looking at a seven or an eight yard gain. And so if everybody does everything, seven or eight yard gain. And then if somebody misses, we're behind the sticks again and we're really struggling. I think when you have play calling that can be a little more exciting and engaging uh, and honestly in tune with with uh, uh, an offense and the skill set, uh, even if you miss on a block, you could still be looking at a four or five yard gain and you're always looking at an opportunity of breaking something big. We I just haven't seen that in this offense since the first three or four games. Okay. And following up on that, let me give it a little bit of context. So Harry yeah. Eastands last year at Tennessee, they were abysmal on offense and their offensive line play wasn't good. And Harry says, I'm going to Notre Dame. And the Tennessee fans are like, bye. Um, so um, and this hall of fame caliber offensive line coach walks out the door. There was so much more to what was going on at Tennessee than Harry Heastan. So when we look at Joe Rudolph, in coaching this offensive line can do we know everything that's going on with Joe Rudolph's coaching or ultimately is it the offensive coordinator that's really driving the bus in terms of their performance more than the offensive line coach it can be Eric right so I was talking to Ryan Harris you know four or five weeks ago um and I told him I just wanted our running game to be about the numbers if we came up to the line and there were seven guys in the box, I wanted to run it right down their throats. And if we came up to the line and there was nine guys, I wanted to run it outside or I wanted to throw the ball. Why can't we give Sam Hartman the keys to that car? And Ryan told me, Bob, do you know how many offenses in all of college football give the quarterback a key like that? And I said, I don't know, 40, 50 percent. And he goes, there's probably seven or eight in all of college football that lets the quarterback decide what we're going to do. Well, 
in Charlie Weiss's offense between John Sullivan, myself, and Brady Quinn, we could have called 75% of our playbook from the line of scrimmage. And so that's a difference between what I experienced and what I think our current players in modern football are experiencing. But I do wonder, um, you know, like if the scheme could be complicated just a little bit more, which essentially makes this whole thing simpler. If there's nine guys in the box, there's no really good way to attack that between the tackles. We've got to get to a different play. My follow-up there then is with a 24-year-old quarterback who's in his sixth year, shouldn't Notre Dame be one of those seven or eight programs that give the keys to the quarterback? I I would say yes. Of okay. If anybody's going to have it, you would think a, a Sam Hartman-led Notre Dame team would have been able to adjust to the the heavy run stopping boxes that we had to face in the middle of our schedule. Okay. Bob, Bob, just before we uh, start hit record here, um, Notre Dame was named one of 12 semifinalists for the Joe Moore award for the best offensive line in college football. Do you think that is warranted? Well, I haven't seen a whole lot of other offensive lines play <laughs> Tyler. Uh, <laughs> you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Um. There are a lot of times that, you know, individual awards happen because of a group of players, right? A running back can get an award because of um, the performance of their O-line. A center can get the Remington because the O-line in general. Mm -hmm. To me, this might be a little bit the O-line getting some recognition because of just how good and strong and powerful Audric Estime has been in the running game. And the numbers kind of bear out over the entire season that Notre Dame's had a pretty successful offense. Um Regardless of the Joe Moore award, I think the question is, would any Notre Dame offensive lineman on this year's team be satisfied with the product that they've put out there for the majority of their season? And I think all of them would say there's something that's out there more than what we've seen on the field. And I think they've got two more games to have that perfect game that just is to this offensive line the one thing that they're going to remember for the rest of their careers. I understand what you say about awards because all the ones behind me were results of Tyler. Uh, <laughs> and in all seriousness, I will say there's something to that in our business. The reason why I display those and they're not in a uh, cabinet is because of my coworkers. I do feel like uh, the people around you allow you to be at your best. And, and Tyler's one of those people and, Bill Belensky wasn't everybody else. So I, I will say that in all seriousness. Okay. As far as now the offensive line going forward, this Joe Moore semifinalist will have at least one new piece going forward and maybe two new pieces this Saturday. So what are your thoughts about somebody with the talent level of Billy Shroff being plugged in and the youth of uh, Ashton Craig and yet a guy that acquitted himself pretty well for the 21 snaps that he did get against Clemson, I thought. Yeah, you know, you and I talked about this, Eric, um, you know, just last night. I think that Ashton looked really good snapping the ball. I think when you look at, you know, a, a first-year guy uh, getting into a game against a defensive front like Clemson, the fact that he didn't snap one over Sam's head is – I can't stress enough how <laughs> key that was to just show 
his uh, his ability to stay calm and focused on the task at hand. So I expect big things from him, regardless if there's one or two mental errors. I think that he's going to have himself a good game in the middle. Billy Shrouf, I mean, this is a guy that competed for this job at the beginning of the year, worked his way into a rotation. I I expect him to operate like the, the sixth man on this offensive line. Um, and and I, I resist the, to the term plug and play. Like, He's just going to be the next man up. I think Rocco does some things really, really well, which earned him the spot. Um, to go back to one of your questions about Joe Rudolph, I think one of the highlights that I can speak of Joe Rudolph is the way he coached Rocco Spindler to a starting role at right guard this year. Uh, and I don't think that that should be overlooked. Um, I think Billy, um, you know, we'll, we'll kind of see what he brings to the table a little bit differently, right? Like may not be as much of a mauler running the ball, but to be honest, against these next two defenses, I think we just need to play mistake-free assignment sound offensive line play. And I think both these guys can come in and do a great job at that. Bob, we have a question from a listener later about Zeke Carell. And so I wanted to get your thoughts as well on him. What what do you when you watch Zeke Carell play, what do you feel like are his strengths and weaknesses? Um, and what how has he sort of performed in your opinion this season? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that Zeke does well is to me, he seemed very uh, assignment sound. Right. So when I've talked about free rushers and, and individuals um, coming into the interior offensive line, I've rarely seen him turn his head, meaning he was where he needed to be. The worst thing you you have is a guy blocking somebody else and then turning their head and watching a linebacker run by them. That's usually a key to that was actually my guy. And so he's he's really locked in on, on who his responsibility is. Um, what I've seen a couple of times, specifically in the run game, um, is I don't know if it's pad level or you know his, his non-snap hand not being strong enough uh, off the get. But he's gotten pushed back at the point of attack a couple of times, um, and we're not when we're not double teaming. When it's just Zeke one on one against a nose guard, uh, he hasn't found a way to to move um, that point of attack to get our running back uh, a few steps into the line of scrimmage. Um, a couple of plays against Clemson, um, he got pushed back uh, earlier in the year. Whenever we've really struggled to get the ball moving, there have been a couple of times that his feet have gotten moved back behind the line of scrimmage. It's a hard position to play, but it's, it's a technician's position where you got to find ways. If you can't push someone off the ball to move them laterally down the line of scrimmage. So they're not getting pushed back into the quarterback or they're running back respectively. So I think uh, a, a little bit of that great on assignments, um, but moving someone around or off the line of scrimmage is something that he's, he's definitely got room to, to grow in his career. Bob Notre Dame, uh, has the weirdest senior day in all of college football in that there's seven guys with expiring eligibility and there will be 31 seniors going through senior day. Um, so Z Carell is one of the guys could actually come back, but let's assume he moves on to either the NFL or um, to the business world or whatever he wants to do. If you're looking at who might be the best center next year, and and Joe Rudolph is, I want to play the best five guys, not necessarily who's up next at center. Would you consider somebody just off the beaten path like Jarrett Patterson was, never played center, Nick Martin never played center, and yet Notre Dame has had some really good centers. That's what they came in to do. 
So what would you, what would be the most important qualities that you would look for in the next center? The size, the force, or somebody that has been snapping the ball and reading defenses a long time? Yeah, so I think uh, some of it has to do with what kind of offense and responsibility you're going to put on your center. Um, I think that if you're going to have someone that's helping identify the defense, where the linebackers are, trying to get the offense in the right way, similar to you know what we did um, back with with uh, uh, with Charlie, who's calling the plays, Mike Haywood, I think had the, the title of offensive coordinator at the time. If you're going to put that on them, yeah, you. <laughs> it was like when got... I was assistant sports editor. It was ceremonial. <laughs> right, right. Um, I think that if you're going to have someone do that, then forget the physical characteristics. You've got to make sure that you've got someone who can make quick decisions, read defenses. You need a quarterback that has an extra hundred pounds on their frame. You know what I mean? You you have to have somebody like that. But for me in the center position, I'm looking for a technician. I'm looking for someone who's, who's offhand, who's, who's non-snap hand is going to get locked in right away, who uh, doesn't need to drive someone off the ball, but knows where the ball is going to go and, and is able to say, I may not be able to push you backwards, but you're not gaining an inch on me. And I think when you have that person in the middle of your offensive line, you then free up your guards to go and be great, whether they're pulling, whether they're bouncing back and forth, um, when they're uncovered, whatever it may be, um, you know, you can help get your guards where they need to be to protect both a gaps first and foremost. And so I would love somebody who's played center, who um, really sound technician and the, the dominating run blocking is, is a tertiary is a third thing for me. That's way in the back. I just need somebody who's, who like Zeke is going to be in the right position all the time because you can have two great tackles, but if you've got three individuals that miss 10% of the time, that means a third of the time you're going to have pressure right up the middle really fast. Bob, I I don't think I'm alone in, in saying that I, Blake Fisher hasn't necessarily played to the high expectations that we have for him coming into this season. Um, but I do think that there haven't been as many people that have at least publicly said that they're maybe nervous about the idea of Blake Fisher being Notre Dame's left tackle next season because I think that's sort of the natural progression for a starting right tackle um, of his um, high talent level to become a left tackle uh, eventually. And certainly with Joel, if, if and when Joel moves on, that would be a possibility. What Am I being too harsh on Blake Fisher there? Do you believe there's, there's hope for him in potentially being uh, Notre Dame's left tackle next season? Well, I mean, you paused for a second before you finished that sentence. Is there hope for Blake Fisher? Absolutely, there's hope for Blake Fisher. What that hope is, is actually going to be determined from January until spring ball, in my opinion. Um, I think that if he wants to have success as a tackle, I think there's some there's some footwork and just uh, kind of foot speed things that he can do to make sure that he's in position, whether it's right or left tackle. Listen, it, the idea that your left tackle is your most important person is a little bit of a dated methodology. Um, I think that your tackles have to deal with really fast rush ends. So regardless of what side he's on, it's really important that he can handle those. Um, and if he has the same type of, you know, improvement, you know, from then until now or now until then, the, the way that Rocco did from spring ball until fall camp, then there's no reason why he can't be an anchor of our offensive line from a tackle position. The thing that interests me, though, is what if the foot speed and playing tackle 
isn't the next step for him. What if, and this is a possibility, not a suggestion, what if his success at this level and the next comes in the same type of move that Zach Martin made from tackle to being the best guard in the country next year? I think that you've got to, if you're looking at playing the best five, there is a chance that Blake Fisher becomes an All-American right guard and solves a lot of problems that you have inside rather than trying to force him into a tackle position. And so that's not, again, not telling Coach Rudolph or anybody that that's what needs to happen. But I think that you do need to say, hey, listen, we're going to put all these cards on the table and figure out who our best five are. We have plenty of people on our message board that will tell Joe Rudolph what to do, so don't feel bad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Kind of going along those lines, and this will be my last question since we promised a certain time frame and we've gone way over. Nice. Uh, (laughs) So, um, but Emil Wagner's a guy that I'm infatuated by, a guy that came in really light but incredible athlete in high school who's been putting on weight and still looks very agile and I think could be a really good tackle. And yet he doesn't have much game experience. So if he wants to break into that lineup next year, what's a key for a guy that has very little game experience to hop into that top five grouping? Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to take this to um, the 2007 Hula Bowl. Um, It was my kind of senior showcase game, uh, one of the three senior games that you could play in. And I went there. There were three centers, four guards, and three tackles. So we were one tackle away from having two full lines. I knew at that point in time I wasn't trying to play at the next level. So I told the coach, hey, I'll go play tackle. And the the guy, Clemson, had recruited me and was like, you can't play tackle. (laughs) These are not scrubs. You can't do it. And I was like, listen, I've got six days till the game. I'll play tackle. And I went across to one of my teammates, who I think was a defensive end for Ohio State, and I said, hey, listen, will you stay after with me for an hour and a half, two hours, however long it takes? I just need a crash course in what you're trying to do as a defensive end. And we did. Hour and a half for the next four practices, it was just him and I until the lights in the stadium turned off, just working on things so that I wouldn't make an ass out of myself (laughs) when we actually played the game. And I went and I had arguably, I mean, it's a showcase game, right? but I may have had like the only perfect game I've ever played. It was like in the hands of God kind of thing. If Emil Wagner wants to kind of jump up in the process and show that he's ready, the number one thing he can do is to go find the best defensive end he can go against and figure out what he can do to slow that defensive end down. If he can get buy-in from somebody on the defensive side of the ball to show the tricks of the trade and 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 work with him a little bit more. I'm telling you that is something that offensive tackles are not doing until they get into competitive spaces. And so that's, if I was a meal, that's what I would do. Go find somebody who's going to go against you every single day when you put pads on and have them teach you ways that you can be better to go against them. Quick follow-up. Did you perform an actual hula dance while you were at that game? I, listen, my hips don't lie because they stay firmly like in line with the rest of my body. And so, no, like if there was any, any hula hoop or skirt or anything, it just would have slid right down to my ankles. So no, I just, I just stayed there and played right tackle for that game. Okay. All right. Now that, now that we've reached the hula portion of the podcast, I think it's time to let you go, Bob. (laughs) We appreciate you joining us as always. and, And thank you so much for your insight.
Well, it's always good to spend time with you guys. Uh, you know, enjoy the last home game, and uh, hopefully we'll we'll see the team that we kind of saw earlier in the year these next two weeks. Before we get to our question segment, I wanted to remind our listeners of our promo that we're offering for InsideIndieSports.com. We have a 30-day free trial that's available to our podcast listeners who want to try out a subscription to the site. That will get you access to all of our premium content, the Inside Lounge message board, and you don't have to wait to uh, get a question in on the next podcast. You can ask us questions on the message board anytime you want. Uh, you can take advantage of this offer by using promo code NDPOD. That's N-D-P-O-D. When you sign up for a subscription on InsideNDSports.com, you can also find a link to that deal in the podcast description or show notes. All right, now it's time for questions. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's at EHansonND. First one I have for us, Eric, is from LDL Go Irish on the Insider Lounge, and this is the question I was referring to um, when I asked Bob Morton about Z Carell. LDL says, my O-line coaches always told me that center is different than any other O-line position. A center wants to win at the point of attack, but more importantly, cannot lose. He cannot be blown up. Zeke Carell played a vital role with his experience, considering the team had two new guards. Was there anyone with high-end potential that could have played center because of the new guards? Was a third inexperienced player at center ever considered an option? Seems you can grow with an inexperienced player at cornerback, but not on the O-line. Your thoughts and insights are always appreciated. Sorry for the length. Um, that for a long question that had a lot of good stuff in it. So no reason to apologize there. There, that is way better questions than Marcus Freeman gets sometimes on Mondays. <laughs> um, if your philosophy is to play the best five and not necessarily limit it by position, you know, guys that are kind of coming up. Shrouth, Wagner, Baker, and Christophic were the guys in the conversation for the best five that didn't end up there. And then Ashton, Craig, and Coogan had center experience. So it would have been possible to play Coogan at center and play either Shrouth, Christophic, or Wagner at left guard. Uh, Joe Rudolph kind of determined that Baker at 6'8", and the way he bends or doesn't bend was not a good fit inside, but they did take a look at that. You don't need prior experience. Notre Dame had an All-American in Jarrett Patterson who had never played center before moving there, his uh, going into a sophomore year on campus. And then Nick Martin was a second-round draft choice. Same thing. He was a high school tackle who had a little guard experience, no center experience, and became really good. So Joe Rudolph's either going to look next year if Z Carell doesn't come back at Ashton Craig or he has some other options that maybe we wouldn't think were were naturals that when you experiment it turns out for example Patterson his first day his spring of his sophomore year was going to be let's experiment with Patterson he was so good that first day they never moved him they didn't try other people and that's how it worked out yeah, I mean, in terms of whether or not there was someone else with high potential that could have played center, I think the two people – I mean, Christophic was always an op option, but I, I think the two that would be more likely um, to be high and potential and, and grow would have been Pat Coogan and Ashton Craig. Um, but I don't 
I don't know that it was necessarily considered a serious option to remove Zeke Carell prior to the season because of that guard and right. experience. I think that experience was needed. Um, and for Carell's faults as a player, I think his his insight um, and experience was something that was necessary. So I understand why that decision was made. I think there were Zeke's played okay at times um, and has had some poor moments, but I think he probably – um, when Kare- or when Coogan and Spindler have had success, I imagine he has had a a a, a role in that as well. So um, that's probably why it, it played out the way it did. But uh, I'm of the opinion that I, I'm interested in seeing someone else at center next year. Um, Zeke Carell certainly could come back. I don't expect that to happen, but we'll see what what happens. Um, SJB 75 on the inside lounge asks, do you either of you believe Jared Parker will be the offensive coordinator at Notre Dame in 2024? Um, my sense is, and this is a guess and not based on anything that I'm hearing. So if there's an aggregate parasitic website that wants to put something up, don't quote me. Uh, but my sense is less than 50%, but it hasn't been determined. I think the question Marcus has to ask, if he's not a top 10 to 15 offensive coordinator in 2023, could he be that in 2024? Yeah, I, I think it's more no than yes, I think is, is the way that I would phrase it. I don't I don't know that it's a certainty. I don't know that the decision has even been made yet. Um, my, I, I, I would assume it probably hasn't been made yet. Um, but I would, if, if, uh, we're at two seasons where they haven't things haven't gone as expected or hoped for Notre Dame. Um, and the offense has sort of been the biggest issue in those two seasons. And if Marcus Freeman wants to make sure that his tenure is a lasting one at Notre Dame, I think getting the offense fixed is of the utmost priority. Um, and does he want to bet his future on Jared Parker as the offense coordinator? I don't know. That seems like a bit of a risk that I, I don't know that I would want to make. Um, so we'll see what Marcus Freeman decides. All right. Next question is from at Murray O'Connell. Would you rather have Tommy Reese or Jared Parker as your offensive coordinator? In 2023, I would rather have Tommy Reese. Long term, I'd rather have neither and someone else. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it funny how things change? Like, I don't know what five weeks ago people were like, look at how bad Tommy Reese is doing at the Alabama yeah. offense. Um, and now everyone's like, well, maybe Tommy Reese would have been better for us than Jared Parker. Um I would have I would have said Tommy Reese before the season. Um, I think that maybe may not have been a popular take amongst Notre Dame fans who like to see I think the that's next what person. Sam Hartman would have voted for. Um uh, yeah, who who um, so I, I think that Reese, his experience at Notre Dame with the pieces around Sam Hartman would have helped. I think he would have had a better grasp of getting more out of this offense with Sam Hartman than Jared Parker has shown. Um, that doesn't mean Tommy Reese doesn't have his flaws, uh, but I, I would have rather had uh, Tommy Reese than Jared Parker. And and even moving forward, I would, I would rather have Reese than Parker. Now, um, how long would I be willing to – to roll with Reese, I don't know that I would put a, put a number on that. All right, next question is from 
at Bleachers Bobby, was Jared Parker a buddy hire? How did they decide he was the guy to be offensive coordinator? Who signed off on that? Was that decision, in your opinion, the most debilitating, a.k.a. the main reason Notre Dame has three losses? I don't hate this as a question. What I do detest is that whenever coaches work together previously and it doesn't work the way people hope it would, it's a buddy hire. Yeah. For example, why would why would Jared Parker be a buddy hire and not Mike Mickens? Mm-hmm. Um, think about your own business. And when you make a hire in your own business, Bleacher Bobby, I don't know what you do, but in the newspaper business, for example, we've had, we'll, we'll talk about our South Bend Tribune um, hires because I was assistant sports editor. I was in on the hiring practices of just about everybody for, gosh, 10 or 15 of my years there, maybe longer. But Mike Varell and Carter Carls were two great hires that were complete strangers to us. We didn't even know who they were before we started the process. We also opened it up when we hired Tyler. Tyler was somebody we had some familiarity with. And for us, that was the right hire at that time. Um, I was an unfamiliar hire every job I've ever gotten. Al Lessar at the Tribune was somebody that they knew. So it's there's not a template for this is going to work out, this isn't going to work out because there's familiarity. I know that Marcus counted familiarity a lot with Jared Parker because he had to trust that person and he wanted that person to have his back. And he had a history where Jared Parker had proven that part of it. Um, and so that was enough for him. Um, and he also wanted somebody that was going to, when he had opened it up and Colin Klein and, and Andy Ludwig were part of that process, there were a lot of great names floating out there, but Marcus in his press conference said there were really three that matched his vision and would provide minimal upheaval from Tommy Reese's system. And that was Klein Ludwig and Jared Parker. Uh, and so uh, everybody signed off on it. I mean, Jack Swarbrick said, yeah, that's a, that's a good hire. Let's go that direction. I think Notre Dame had a little bit of a timing issue. They were a little bit under the gun given the late departure in the off season of Tommy Reese to Alabama. That was kind of driven by, an NFL hiring from Alabama's old offensive coordinator. And then you want to get into, um, was it the most debilitating, the main reason Notre Dame has three losses? If we're looking at the coaching factors, I would say yes, that is the main reason that Notre Dame has three losses. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what other decision could be more to blame um, when you talk about Notre Dame's three losses than the way the offense has performed. And um, I don't know that there's a more natural person to blame that on than the coordinator. Like, I, um, unless you want to blame Marcus Freeman for being the one who <laughs> who made the decision, um, or whatever happened with Andy Lowe, like whoever the heck's fault that was that it couldn't come to fruition. Um, I. So, yeah, I mean, like like Eric mentioned, I was a buddy hire. Uh, so uh, I think uh, people only use that phrase when they want to, like, paint something negatively rather than positively. Um, I, w- I would say it would be, like, 
it's not like they didn't consider anyone else. If 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 Marcus Freeman lost Tommy Reese and said, okay, Jared Parker, you're just going to be our offensive coordinator, then I would see more fault in it being like a buddy hire. Uh, it ended up being more of like a convenient hire because the other guys that Notre Dame considered and wanted didn't work out. Um, and Jared Parker seemed, from Marcus Freeman's perspective, the, the next uh, candidate that made the most sense. So um, I, don't, I don't think it – like it wasn't like a decision that was signed off in any other – any different way than any other head coach um, would operate. Um, so I, I just think that it hasn't worked out the way folks had hoped it would have. All right. At Notre Dame expert asks, smash hires at offensive coordinator, Byron Leftwich, Charlie Weiss, Philip Rivers, Andy Ludwig, Tony Alford. If Parker stays, Mike Sanford Jr. as co-offensive coordinator and mandatory Zoom meetings with great offensive minds, such as Charlie Weiss Sr., Dave Cutcliffe, and Bob Stoops. Parcells can help too. Thoughts? My thoughts are um, Notre Dame expert. We need to just go out and have a beer. I, <laughs> I, I like you a lot. I don't see a lot here that makes a lot of sense. I, I don't think Mike Sanford has torn it up as an offensive coordinator. At one point, he was the bright ascending name in the coaching business, and it hasn't turn out for him i don't like the word mandatory in the zoom session i do like the thought of somebody with a veteran presence being an analyst uh that could be a great resource but not a mandatory resource um you want somebody to grow in their position some of the names you mentioned i wouldn't hire in a million years and others you know i'm sure are would be good i don't know that they're a fit at notre dame Here's where who I would hire. I would hire Marie Biafori to keep everyone <laughs> in line. That would be my hire. Yeah, of the names that Notre Dame expert mentioned, I, Ludwig and Leftwood were the only ones that I could see being described as smash hires. Like Phil Rivers isn't even a coach, I, to my knowledge. Uh, Tony Alford hasn't been a play caller before. So, I mean, what we've already been through the Jared Parker experience. Why would you go to another some person who hasn't? called plays um charlie weiss who um to avoid confusion is is junior in this situation i believe notre dame expert is referring to um, oh okay so yeah junior is somebody that i do think is a a very good offensive coordinator yeah i don't know that i would call it a smash hire just because he hasn't done it at this level necessarily as a play caller um so but I, I, I do think there is merit to that. The other ones, I don't know that there's a lot of, much merit you, to. You're, you said at this level that Ole Miss doesn't count as this is he level. Call, is he calling plays? Is Lane Kiffin not calling plays? Oh, I see. I see what you're saying. Um, I don't know. That's a good I, I, question. That's my assumption. I don't know that yeah. for certain. Um, I just He I'm has not, called plays. He has, but, but it's I been don't in know Southeast, he, South Florida. I, oh, yeah, you're right. Lane may be doing it there. Right. Um, so that was that's, that's what I mean um, as it relates to that. So – um, uh, I, I don't know that these, these, uh, requests or suggestions from Notre Dame expert will be, will be, uh, rising up the, the food chain if, if, if Notre Dame's in the offensive coordinator market this off season. All right. Next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. What do you need to see from the offense this weekend against Wake Forest to convince you that sufficient self-scouting and evaluation was performed during the bye week? and that there is some movement in a positive direction. 
You see why she would be my hire? Look at that <laughs> accountability she's looking for right there. I like that. So I would want to see a two-dimensional offense that shows a semblance of what it was conceived to be, an offense that has ability to open up the run with the pass, ability to open up the pass with the run. I'd like to see a resurgent Sam Hartman, and I'd like to see an improved offensive line play, even with the new parts, and one that lives up to being <laughs> Joe Moore semifinalist. Well, if me, Marie Biafore became offensive coordinator, I would be glad to ask her for grades for every position every week. <laughs> <laughs> um, if it, in order to see that self-scouting and evaluation that happened and there was movement in a positive direction, I would want to see a running game that sets up a passing game or vice versa. To me, those things have not worked in concert well enough lately. They're not necessarily complementing each other. Um, and Notre Dame needs to figure that out to best um, to get the most out of this offense, I feel like. And it, it needs to be a complementary offense, and I don't think it has been uh, for quite some time now. All right, next question is from Frank Sarah at Frank S.E. Bunch of Numbers. Will Notre Dame try to run more RPO against Wake Forest? I feel Hartman lost his confidence on throwing the ball down the field. I feel more inclined to, to address the statement first about Hartman losing his confidence at throwing down the ball down the field. I don't think it's a lack of confidence in his arm, but maybe um, he sometimes, with good reason, has, yeah. <laughs> has um, been hesitant about the protection and maybe hesitant about receivers interpreting the routes the same way he is. But I think... Um, you know, if Jaden Thomas suddenly had a miracle cure to his hamstring and was and Mitchell Evans was out there, I think we would see Sam Hartman showing quite a bit of confidence and throwing the ball downfield. Will we see RPOs more RPOs against Wake? I, I'm I'm not sure that uh, what Wake gives you on defense um, would prompt a, a a change in the percentage that Notre Dame generally runs there. Uh, you know, Marcus doesn't share the game plan with us. Uh, so I don't know how to answer that. Tyler's smarter than me, so I'll let him answer that part of it. <laughs> um, I'm smarter. I'm, I'm only smarter than you when you don't want to answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> um I uh, I would say I don't necessarily think that they'll we'll see more RPOs. I mean, maybe we see some, but I don't know that's going to be a significant part of the offense. Uh, it hasn't necessarily been. That could be one way to get more play action involved and, and put some decision making into Sam Hartman's lap. Uh, but I don't know that there's been any reason to believe that that would be successful for Notre Dame. Uh, so if it does happen, I, it would be. Um, I don't think a, a strong correlation to something that's happened previously this season. Um, has he lost his confidence on throwing the ball on the field? I, I, I'm in agreement with Eric that it's more confidence in, in the receivers uh, making plays for him than it is uh, his ability to physically throw it down the field. All right. Next question is from Steven Goforth at Steve Goforth five. What is the best course of action for next season? A, get the best transferred quarterback we can and hope for the best record. 
B, let's go with the quarterbacks on the roster, including CJ Carr, and let them get experienced but have a worse record. Okay, when I say this, I'm not disparaging the other questions, but I love this question. And to me, A is the answer. And here's why, kind of in my experience, you are always playing for the next season, especially if you're a coach. You don't know if you're going to have a season after that. But 2012, Notre Dame was supposed to be a year away. 2013 was supposed to be the stat team. And 2012 was the team that was going to get them there. But they didn't play it like that. They played it as if 2012 was the year and they end up getting in the championship game. I think there was a little bit of that in 2018. I don't remember as as much of that field that they were a year away, but the thought that the 2019 team could be pretty good um, and the 2018 team ended up being better. Uh, so I, I think you always want to play for the year. And you can still develop those other quarterbacks on the roster, and you may have an injury and one of them has to play anyway. So A is my answer. Yeah, I mean, especially like under the scenario, like if you if you're playing – a young quarterback at Texas A&M. I know there's upheaval at Texas A&M with the coaching change, but like, do you, do you think that you're, so you're going to start your season off with a loss probably. Right. Um, and then you have some easier games to play Northern Illinois, maybe Purdue's better, but they're, they're not great, but you are going on the road to play Purdue. Um, Louisville we've seen is going to be a good team next year. I would imagine. Um, but with the trajectory of that program, um, yeah, Florida State coming to town. Got to go to USC. If you play a young quarterback and know that you're going to experience some losses, you're probably also going to lose a game you don't expect. Obviously, I mean that seems to happen regardless of who's playing yeah. quarterback for Notre Dame um, under this current tenure. Like, can you afford to go seven and five next season? And if you do, doesn't that make your make or break season 2025 with a quarterback that lost five games for you? I, I, I don't know that that makes a lot of sense. I think it makes more sense to go nine and three next season. And, and that's like, that's like the low, I, like, I think that would be a disappointing season probably if you go get who the best quarterback is out there. Um, and even if you have a disappointing season, you're still nine and three, you're not a bad program. And then, then you're selling the future with quarterbacks moving forward. Um, now that's, that's, that that's like my, that's if I'm the head coach, right? Like I can sell the future and I, I'm i buying myself some security. Um, from a fan perspective, I can understand why that might not feel satisfying. Um, but I think I think the best, best records more often lead to progress than sacrificing the, 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 the present for a potential future, which in college football now with the transfer portal as prevalent as it is, how can you feel like you're building towards the future with one season? Like, I think you got to take it one season at a time. I think everything is so independent of each other um, that, that I don't know that you can afford to sort of build like you would in maybe the NFL. All right. Next question is from at Charles W. Wolf. This is putting the cart way before the horse, but can you think of a season opener with more unknowns for both teams than 2024 between the Fisher dismissal at Texas A&M and ND roster turnover, I have no idea what to expect from either team. Both could be playoff contenders or really bad. Um, okay, I'm going to answer the question first, and then I want to make a point. Um, I, I think there's going to be some blind date um, elements to this. 
particularly from Texas A&M standpoint, um, can you think of a season, but the question is, can you think of a season with more unknowns for both teams? I, I think 2020 was uh, a season <laughs> fraught with unknowns based on how teams practiced. It had no spring practices, yeah. how herky-jerky the summer workouts were. Uh, you never knew when your team was going to come down with COVID as a group and have to cancel games. Duke wasn't the opener originally that year. Navy was, and Duke was game eight in October of that season. The schedule got reworked because of the pandemic. So I think 2020 probably will stand as the weirdest year for that. 2019 was a little bit of a mystery. They opened at Louisville with a new head coach who's probably regretting moving to Cincinnati and, and new coordinators and Scott Satterfield. Uh, but I do think, you know, there's elements of it. But but what I will say is both could be player contenders. Playoff contenders are really bad. I don't think Notre Dame is going to be bad. I don't think that's even a um, strong possibility that they would be really bad. I guess anything can happen. But you think about the people that are coming back, how recruiting's going, um, that there's a commitment to getting people out of the transfer portal. I would be surprised if Notre Dame wasn't at least as good next year as they were this year, especially with the schedule that they have and the way it sets up. Texas A&M, there's more um, variables because you don't know how many outgoing players will be in the portal right. because of the coaching change. You don't know who they're going to bring in. They're, it's a talented roster right now. Uh, the reason that there's a coaching change is because the coaching sucked. Um, but but there is a lot of talent on Texas A&M's roster, and there's maybe some cultural rot there. And then there's always Carter Carls being a jinx. Carter <laughs> managed to get both coaches fired in the game he covered Saturday. So Mississippi <laughs> State also fired their coach as well. But I, I think, yes, a lot of mystery about the opener. And yet my expectation is that these teams will be very talented. Yeah, I I I assume that the question was related to Notre Dame rather than any other like programs, which I I, I suppose it could have been about, but I, I it would take me too long to figure out like other teams. I'm just so much more familiar with Notre Dame and what what questions it had going on. Well, he season. said season opener, so I think he meant Texas AM too. Yeah, no, no, no. I, yeah, but I mean, like, could Alabama's season opener this year against whoever that against Texas qualified as an answer for the question? Is what I meant. Oh, I thought um, he meant Notre Dame. That's why. That's what I'm saying. I'm, that's how I'm answering oh, yeah. it. But I think yeah. it could have been answered the other way. Okay. Um, and I think it would be harder for us to come up with that answer. Um, I, tw I think, I, and when I was coming up with that answer, it's like, well, we can't count 2020 because no one knew what the heck anything was going to happen in 2020. We didn't even know that there was going to be a season until. <laughs> I right. walked into the stadium that day. <laughs> um, I said maybe 2015. Um, that was Notre Dame, Texas. Uh, Notre Dame's got a new offensive coordinator, Mike Sanford, new quarterback, Malik Zaire. Brian Van Gorder's in his second year as defensive coordinator. Uh, Notre Dame's coming off an eight and five season. So you don't really know. I don't think you knew really where things were going with, with Notre Dame's program at that point. That Obviously, they had their high in 2012 and it, 
felt like maybe the luster was was maybe going away from from Notre Dame at that point. Um, and then and then the way the season played out was not how anyone necessarily would have mapped it out either. Um, and then Texas, that's the, that was the second year for Charlie Strong as head coach. They were coming off a six and seven season. There was a big question mark at quarterback with Tyrone Swoop. So so that was the other game that I came up with. Um, certainly 2016, the Notre Dame Texas game was the one that ended up being uh, a <laughs> no that had told us nothing about either team except that Notre Dame was not going to be good at defense, <laughs> and, that and, was, and that the media proclaimed Texas being back. Yeah, and that was not that was not the case either. All right, ne- next and last question is from NWI underscore Irish ninety six. Any new info on a potential new TV deal? Boy, I can't wait till it's done. Uh, then I will <laughs> not have to answer this question. And it's not a bad question. I understand why people are curious. And Northwest Irish is a pretty astute guy. But I, I don't think this is something that's going to come out piecemeal until we get to right at the end of it when it's all coming together. You've got a new AD at Notre Dame taking over in the spring. And Pete Bavacqua, the current deal runs through 2025. And I, you know, there's not a... Um, not the pressure to get this done, you know, in December of this year of 2023. I mean, there's plenty of time to get that framework done. There can be marketing factors that um, give one team or the other some leverage or one side or the other some leverage in this negotiation. But I, I don't sense we'll maybe start to see things taking shape until after Pete Bavak was taken over. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. To me, the no news or updates or leaks suggest that it's status quo with NBC rather than someone else. Like if it was, if there were more, if Notre Dame was trying to drum up other interest or um, it was uncertain about its future, I think that, that there might be more things that would come out in the media at, from those that cover sports TV rights and stuff like that. We haven't really seen much of that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't have any new info. Um, and when we have it, we will certainly share it. Um, but uh, if, if I had to guess, I think Notre Dame's going to be with NBC. I think I think it's just a matter of figuring out what that number looks like and um, what, what that means for Notre Dame moving forward. All right, that is it for today's episode of the Inside Indie Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, and share our podcast feed with a senior at Notre Dame. As I mentioned earlier, we're offering a 30-day free trial for our podcast listeners who want to try out a subscription to InsideIndieSports.com, so please take advantage of that with the code NDPOD, N-D-P-O-D. Our football never sleeps from YouTube uh, that we recorded live on Monday night. We'll be in the podcast feed later this week. And then we'll be back on YouTube with place your bets and post game takeaways on Friday and late Saturday. And as always, we'll have plenty of written content coming your way before then. So stick with insight for all your Notre Dame coverage needs. <laughs>